Welcome. Welcome to the August Citizens Climate Lobby call. Alyssa Tennant, thank you another for a great pre-conference video. Really appreciate that. Two groups of people that I want to speak to. First, my name is Mark Reynolds. I'm a member of the CCL staff and I'll be hosting today's call. Uh, to those of, For those of you in Hawaii, we really feel for what happened there in Maui. And we believe that we have uh, touched base with all of our volunteers and we believe that all of our people are safe, but we really feel for what happened. That was really, really tough. Uh, I also want to say something to those of you who are brand new to Citizens Climate Lobby. We really exist for two reasons. One is to create the political will for a livable world, and the second is to empower people to have breakthroughs in their personal and political power. It's our belief that politicians don't create political will, they respond to it. So our job is to create the political will for action on climate that's big enough to match the problem. So in the last few years, we passed six bipartisan climate-related bills. We were instrumental in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the largest climate bill in history. Our volunteers in Canada were absolutely essential to Canada's carbon pricing policy to be put in place. And in Europe, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that's going to be beginning to be worked on in October, our volunteers are part of that process. So it's really always aiming at the biggest possible solutions. What's going to happen today? First of all, we'll have a guest speaker who I'll be introducing in just a moment. After that, there should be plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, after her time is done, then we'll get uh, an update on some of the things that have been happening both domestically and internationally. We'll go over what we're doing, and then there's some really exciting things happening here in the fall, so we want to let you know about what you should expect in the upcoming near-term future. I'll say our guest today is Ramona Liberoff. She's the Executive Director of Platform Accelerating the Circular Economy, PACE which was launched by the World Economic Forum and is a delivery platform of the World Resources Institute. The circular economy offers solutions to the joint crises of climate change and biodiversity loss by regenerating natural systems, keeping products and materials in circulation, and preventing waste and pollution. After a career of leading innovation for multinationals such as Unilever and Pexico, Ramona has worked at the intersection of global climate innovation and finance at Roots of Impact and the CEO of Spring Accelerator and as the CEO of the Energy Innovation Hub. And usually we're saying welcome and thank you for taking part of your morning or afternoon, but thank you for taking part of your evening from the Netherlands today, Ramona. Thank you so much and welcome. We're so pleased to have you here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Mark and Madeline, to all of you who've made this possible. I'm very excited to share our work with you, but also to have a discussion with all of you about how this might fit the excellent work that you do. I'm a huge believer in, in citizen and direct action. Um, as you may be able to hear from my voice, I'm originally from the U.S. myself. Um, I was born in New York, um, but have lived abroad and worked globally for about the last 30 years. So it's a real privilege that I have to be able to um, to partner closely with people like the U.S. State Department, corporates like Apple and Accenture that are U.S.-based, but also that work globally. And as you'll see from what I'm about to share, um, a lot of the work that we do, you know, emphasizes the fact that, that even though action may happen locally, all of these issues affect all of us globally. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I'm just going to basically give you a little quick overview of what PACE actually is, um, because these things can seem incredibly abstract. Um, as Mark mentioned, the Platform for Accelerating the Circular Economy is a public-private partnership hosted by the World Resources Institute, which is an environmental think tank, which some of you may know. It's been uh, around in Washington, D.C. and the world for the last 40 years or so, working primarily on climate, but increasingly on issues that affect people and nature as well. 
Um, we've learned a lot in the four years since PACE has been around. I actually joined just under a year ago because I think part of the challenge was that, as with many things that are created um, up a mountaintop at Davos, um, the initial idea was that if you just got corporate and political leaders together and they spoke about the circular economy and thought it was wonderful, were inspired by the work of, of leading companies and governments, then everyone would suddenly adopt it. Surprisingly enough, that hasn't happened. Um, and when I came on board to really understand what we could do to accelerate the circular economy, three things became clear. The first was it's really difficult. We're effectively trying to create um, not as many people think, and we'll talk about in a minute, a recycling system, but actually a completely different way of thinking about resources that also affects the economy um, and people's lived experiences. Often happens very locally um, and often requires partnerships that aren't in place. The second is that it actually requires a lot of people who are not necessarily at the top of governments or businesses to take action. And a lot of our work is now identifying those communities, um, including citizens movements like yourselves who can really take action in these areas. And the third reason why it's challenging uh, is because right now, none of the economic frameworks are set up to allow it. Um, and I'll talk a bit about that in a minute. I understand that you have um, previously heard from someone talking about critical minerals. So I've chosen to focus on that aspect of our work for this talk, but we also do work um, in food systems and also in trying to bring decarbonization and circularity closer together. So happy to talk about that more broadly in the Q&A. I think the first thing I'd say about the circular economy um, is that particularly in North America, um, and in out, anywhere basically outside of Europe where it's slightly earlier in its evolution, we don't really understand its potential. It gets talked about a lot, um, but when we actually look about what, at what gets talked about, um, it tends to be this. Basically, um, the idea of a circular economy in the US is actually only one tiny aspect of the circular economy and the very, very last step in material use, which is if you can't reduce or refuse or reuse or repurpose or make something last longer or share it, then you have to dispose of it somehow. Um, and responsible disposal often means recycling. And this also translates most often into recycling of plastic waste. It's not really a surprise that this has come to mean the circular economy because the fossil fuel industry has spent a great deal of money making individuals think that they are responsible for disposing of an, an absolute ballooning amount of plastic that's out in the world. But the circular economy, fortunately, is a lot more than plastic. Um, it's not to decry that plastic is a major issue. Um, there are hundreds of millions and many, many initiatives like some of these on the slides that are addressing plastic pollution. Um, but we don't work on plastic as PACE because we actually believe it's a waste management issue and one that should be solved by regulation and litigation. So we look instead at things can be, that can be solved through innovation, policy, and investment, and also behavior change from those who have the ability to take action. So switching to one of the things we do work on, which I think will give a really good illustration of what the circular, circular economy is from our point of view, is basically if we're going to, on the one hand, meet the needs of a rapid energy transition, there is a very, very strong material component to this. Um, we are going to need, it's a fact, uh, it's an inescapable fact that in, in an acceptable time frame for this transition, we're going to have a very sharp ramp up um, of a whole range of what are known as critical or strategic minerals and materials. Um, so if we want, if we're, we're on the clock, we have a race and what we don't want to do is make sure that the only people who get access to these are rich countries 
Um, and we certainly want to make sure that this, this increased need doesn't lead to an excuse for a slower transition because we can't afford it. And actually the circular economy is an absolutely critical element to making this happen. Um, this is a slide, very, very busy slide, but just to, um, in, in case it piques your interest, the Energy Transition Commission have done a lot of detailed analysis about exactly what kinds of materials are going to be needed, when, uh, what technologies could potentially substitute for them, and where the circular economy, that is repurposing minerals and materials, um, or allowing them to be, to be used for longer, for example, can actually be used. Um, so we actually have all the knowledge that we need to really map the world and the needs of the energy transition. However, what we don't have um, is an equal way of seeing the circular economy alongside mining. And if, if any of you have picked up a newspaper, listened to a radio broadcast or podcast in recent months, there is only one story. It is that of accelerating extraction, possibly accelerating extraction even into deep sea mining, which we don't know a great deal about. And personally, I don't, I don't think it should be the first port of call for this need. Um, what we have never really heard about is what would it take to actually get a circular economy in place because, and here is the stunning fact, that somewhere between half and one third of all of the minerals and materials that we need for the energy transition are already out of the ground. They exist in things like um, electronics. So if, if any of you on the, call, on the call have a phone in your drawer, um, there's a whole bunch of things in there that need to be gotten back so that they can be repurposed. But right now we have neither the economics nor the infrastructure, nor any of the political will or awareness to build what we would call a reverse supply chain, um, which is basically the missing part of a circular economy. You see on this slide effectively today's world where everything is geared toward extracting, manufacturing, selling, consuming, and then getting rid of. But actually what we need is what's on the bottom half of this slide is we actually need ways to get things back into the system and use them as effectively as possible. And while the um, image on this slide may be a plastic bottle, just imagine that you're talking about something that contains gold or lithium or nickel or copper or any, any one of the other critical minerals um, that are around. So that's basically what we are working on. Um, and our launch of this particular piece of work is going to happen during Climate Week with um, our announcement that the US State Department is joining our board with an interest in critical minerals. And we're gathering together uh, policymakers, innovators, and investors so that we can create one hopefully quite powerful joint narrative about the opportunity for the circular economy. And our ambition would be, of course, you know, we've got great hubris and no budget, but our ambition would be that we elevate that discussion to the same level as the constant drumbeat of we must extract more, extract more, extract more in order to meet the needs of the energy transition. We simply don't believe that's the case. Um, and even though we're looking here at the needs of the energy system, um, there are opportunities likewise in agriculture and in built environment and in many, many other production systems that we want to make sure get the same level of profile and support um, and that circular economy, first and foremost, is not seen or talked about as recycling, because clearly it is much, much more than that. Um, I would encourage those on the call, I'm not going to sort of present the whole backdrop of the circular economy, but I really wanted to encourage people to have a look at, for example, the excellent work that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has done on talking about regenerative economies. So, you know, if you were to imagine a production system that is truly regenerative, for example, in agriculture, what does that look like? It looks like healthy soils. It looks like healthy forests. It looks like healthy incomes. And most likely also the economic models that underpin it 
are not extractive capitalism. They are some form of cooperative um, and partnership capitalism that does exist in the world in various places. Um, but I wanted really, with the, with the benefit of that very short introduction to the topic, I really wanted to make this more of a discussion. So I've put together a few questions that I would love your perspective on. Um, and of course, very happy to answer questions as well. But we're really mulling over what will it take, particularly in North America, where awareness of this is quite low at the moment, what will it take to raise awareness of the circular economy and really to define the circular economy properly as more than plastic recycling? Um, you know, what do you think that stakeholders would find it difficult to understand? Indeed, what would you find it challenging to wrap your minds around? And is this completely new to you or have you seen this before? Um, so these were some of the questions that were on my mind as I was putting together this very brief introduction. But um, as Mark said, the purpose of this was really to um, take questions and learn from each other. So I'll stop there and hopefully some people have some questions. Thanks very much. Uh, Flannery's been uh, monitoring the questions and she'll she'll come up with, with what we have and also if people want to respond to your questions. But it's really, uh, it, we're really talking about a major contextual shift here, right? Uh, a rethinking of the way that we think about how we get stuff, how we distribute stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really something quite broad and uh, it's very exciting, inspiring from my point of view. But Flannery, let me, let me turn it over to you and, and what kind of things do we have so far? Sure. Um, we have one question asking, is this solely an awareness issue or are there other roadblocks that we face? Mm, great question. I mean, to me, it, it starts with awareness. I was trained as a marketer and frankly, you can't make anything happen unless someone knows it's there. And I think we probably the people who work in the field who are environmentalists, they believe everyone understands this. But one of my observations was, you know, when I went to the circular economy conferences, the numbers were in the hundreds and everyone knew each other already. So to me, that's not a good sign that awareness is where we need it to be. So although we have to look at, as I say, the, the joint set of innovation, investment and policy changes, all of which will need to happen all on a grand scale and all at the same time, we won't get anywhere unless we effectively redefine what the circular economy is and are very precise about what it means in a very, very specific production context. Because I think, as you say, Mark, people often think the circular economy, it's either plastic recycling or it's kind of everything and nothing all at once. So we believe the key to this is an approach we call system acupuncture, which is to look really deep in production systems and say, where are the points at which we could intervene? Because I think that helps get helps people make turn the awareness into consciousness and then the consciousness hopefully into action. Mm. That's, I love that idea. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, as a starting as a marketing campaign. You know, I, I uh, once had a business partner who um, taught marketing and the guy's desk, I mean, office next to him had the sign, the world will be the path to your door if you build a better mousetrap. And he had examples of 60 <laughs> failed mousetraps that yeah. just never had a good marketing exactly. campaign, right? Exactly, exactly. And we, need, we also need citizens and we need voters to be aware of this because, um, so much of the of the energy and climate debate only happens in very, very technical discussions. But without the will of the people, you know, this stuff isn't going to get built and it certainly isn't going to get done. Right, right. Flannery, what else do we have there? We have a couple of folks asking questions about the donut economy mm -hmm. uh, model. Is yes. that, uh, can you speak to the relationship between your work and that idea? Absolutely. So donut economics, um, 
sort of created by the brilliant Kate Raworth and actually instantiated in places like Amsterdam, just around the corner. The Netherlands tends to be this incredible lab for a lot of these ideas because it's a tiny and very, very resource conscious country. And yet it's also a wealthy country, you know, with a sort of fairly well-functioning, uh, although recent events may may give the lie to that, but up to now, fairly well-functioning coalition democracy. So it, it's been a great place for innovation in this. The Kate's um, donut economics is really what does an economics look like that keeps us within planetary boundaries, but also crucially ensures that each citizen has a sufficiency. So, you know, we hear a lot about efficiency in production systems, but donut economics is really about sufficiency. So effectively, we are working on the production system, the technical issues to do with this, but very much with the backdrop of something like donut economics in mind as the companion piece. You need to sort of restructure your economic system at the same time as you restructure your production systems for this all to work in tandem. Great. <clears throat> so the questions are coming fast and furious. People are <laughs> very intrigued by this, this topic. Um, I'll say, I personally, when you mentioned having a cell phone in your drawer that you sort of, there are Everyone does. materials in that. Um, that's, I think that resonated with a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, so this, this is a question, uh, from Mike asking, are there big changes needed around how we manufacture goods so that they can be, uh, recycled, reused more efficiently? Yes. Fantastic question. I mean, a lot of the opportunity here actually starts with design. Um, and the European Union just did a very scathing audit of its own efforts. They have allegedly spent 10 billion euros in the last decade or so on so-called circular economy efforts. And what they realized was that 95% of that money went to recycling and waste management infrastructure. Unsurprisingly, because there was this ballooning amount of textile and plastic waste and no municipality had enough to cope with it. So, of course, cities used it the way they could. But actually, the most important thing we can do is rethink our production systems from the get-go. And some of the most interesting work done by our leadership group is actually around design. So for example, uh, the Italian utility company NL, in addition to exiting fossil fuels, has also started um, to try and think about how to substitute things like timber in wind turbines rather than necessarily steel, which is obviously highly difficult to decarbonize and also there's going to be a shortage. So, you know, eco-design and principles like that are terribly important. Also the idea of refusal, of not purchasing things at all, or of getting something that is longer lasting and higher quality is a big part of all of this. So we actually need to rethink every single step in the production and consumption cycle to make a circular economy a reality. If I may, I will give Apple some credit because they were the first to set themselves a target of 100% recyclable materials and the first to create a new grade of aluminium that actually is, um, I think I have the actual model from 2014 that I'm talking to you on of laptop where they, they managed to create a high grade of aluminium purely from recycled materials. But in so doing, they realized how difficult and how expensive it was to get recycled materials in the kind of quantity they needed and also with the sort of um, cost profile they needed. And they realized that in a world where it costs twice as much to get recycled materials to use um, as it does to get materials out of the ground, that's a kind of crazy world to live in. So that's when they decided to dedicate some of their, um, you know, their attention and effort to creating public goods in this area. And that's why they're part of PACE. Yeah, we're, we're glad that you said that also. We are not the uh, let's beat up everybody we disagree with uh, organization. We are the, you know, let's see if we can find what we can work with them on, what they are doing well um, that we can celebrate. Yeah. Flannery, what, what else do we have there? So um, one uh, 
policy that CCL has spent a lot of time working on is uh, price on carbon or price on carbon pollution. Um, mm-hmm. Do you comment on how carbon pricing or pollution pricing could help foster the development yeah. of the circular economy? Would that have, have an impact? It's an excellent question. And I am delighted that you are, you know, you, you have put so much focus and attention on this very effective kind of stick in a way. I think the challenge is, and I think the I saw something pop up about CCUs um, somewhere in there, and I wanted to talk about this. The challenge with most climate work is it tends to fixate on carbon. Um, and obviously, one way to mitigate carbon is carbon sequestration or carbon storage or carbon capture or whatever you want to call it. And you might say at that point, well, job's done. But actually, a circular economy is about more than carbon and more than climate. And part of what we're trying to do, while completely respecting that so many people's focus rightly is on car- is on decarbonization, is actually to make sure that all the other elements of keeping within limits, the material limits of our planet are respected. Um, because it's not always a decarbonization question. So, for example, um, the mining of rare earths is not necessarily a high carbon um, activity, some of the other elements it is, but it actually has as many negative consequences on biodiversity, on worker rights and safety. Um, you know, it, there's a lot more to consider in a true circular economy than, than carbon. Um, so we're trying to make sure without wishing to blow anybody's circuitry or make it feel impossible, um, that we balance the considerations. And that's where things like um, the elimination of not just decarbonization, but also circularity considerations in procurement are actually really helpful. And we're trying to do things like rewrite um, the procurement guidance for public sector around materials like steel to focus on more than than just carbon. Because ironically enough, sometimes what you do for carbon is not necessarily what you would do for circularity. So we have to be honest about those tensions and make sure that people have the information they need um, to you know, to make the right choices. By the way, things like tax and accounting systems also don't necessarily support circularity at the moment. Sharing economy businesses are are charged more for making more effective use of resources than than primary sales in some cases. Right, Flannery, I, I think we've got a, a time for another question. Is there another one that's that's jumping out at you? Okay, yeah. Our next most upvoted question uh, is a question from Jean asking, are there any successful examples so far? Of circularity, circular economy, absolutely there are. Um, I think the cha- one part of our challenge is to roam around the world and to find the examples that could scale. And I might mention a really exciting one that we're looking at in innovation for, um, for food value chains. We've basically been looking in the systems acupuncture way on the rice value chain. And there are three very commonly discarded pro- byproducts that today when you make rice, they're just thrown away or they're burnt. But actually, one of them it makes a very, very useful high silica input to cement. So you have a win-win there. You create more income for the farmers and processors of rice. You avoid the burning, which leads to 40,000 deaths alone in India every year from pollution. And you're able to lower the, the embedded carbon of cement. So it's just about kind of plugging in, like you think about a switchboard, right? A material switchboard. There's also great examples of what we call industrial symbiosis. Because people think of a circular economy as right. Okay, I'm a I'm a factory and I burn my rubbish into biomass energy. Aren't I wonderful? Aren't I circular? But actually, the best example of this is where you have a city that allows 10, 11, 20 organizations who all make different stuff to use each other's inputs and outputs and create a zero a zero waste loop locally, which lowers the overall resource demands for the entire city, makes them more resilient, and generally improves people's sort of income and and health. 
Um, so there are loads and loads of great examples. Um, and I'm very happy if anybody wants to contact me at any point with any particular questions about those to, to share them. Great. Wow. Well, that was fantastic. Is there anything else that you'd like to add the just an important message that didn't get across or something that you think would be uh, helpful for us to, to know in, in concluding your remarks? Yes, thank you. I mean, I, I think I really did want to put this out as a sort of counterpoint um, to say that I think the, the clean energy revolution is absolutely achievable. Um, mm. And we have basically all the knowledge and all the technology we need. We don't currently have the political will or the economics or the policies in place at scale. So I would really, really welcome um, learning more about how the Citizens Climate Lobby and other groups like it can help us first raise the awareness and then also put together a coherent platform um, to make this reality in, in North America. Great, well, we would love to help in any way we can and uh, thank you so much. Wow, that was, that was fantastic. And My uh, pleasure. Thanks, I know it's everybody. late there, but if you wanna stay on the next 10 or 15 minutes, you're certainly welcome to. Thank <laughs> you so much, you. I will do. Yeah. Great to meet everyone and, and look yeah. forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Ramona. Whew. Okay, so what I wanted to do was give you a quick update on some of the things that are happening uh, internationally and nationally. So let's start with, uh, let's hear from Joseph Robertson, the Executive Director of Citizens Climate Lobby International, of some of the things that are happening in our international efforts. Um, so just some updates on what we've been doing internationally and some of the news around what we're doing as well. Um, you know, in the last uh, month and a half or so, we've started new chapters in Bucharest, Romania, Tel Aviv, Israel, and Belgrade, Serbia. These are new countries we've added as well with active chapters. Uh, we also added a new chapter in Nepal and one in rural Saskatchewan in Canada. So we're expanding theirs. We now have active chapters in 54 countries, 22 more in development. Um, I want to say a, a word or two about our Bretton Woods action team. Bretton Woods is the place where uh, it was agreed that the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund would be created back in the 1940s. The World Bank was set up to fight poverty. The IMF was set up to prevent debt defaults and runaway inflation like the ones that were thought to cause Nazi Germany to happen. The aim was to prevent another World War II. Um, last year, 90 countries around the world were facing debt distress, meaning that they could go into bankruptcy and completely collapse and unravel. Uh, so that means that something new has to happen. The Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Motley, uh, has been calling for a rethinking of the global financial order, um, essentially pointing out that vulnerable countries like hers uh, should not be punished for spending to address climate disasters they didn't cause. Just to use an example, um, there are investment banks, some of the very large ones you've heard of uh, in New York, who make a lot of their money from oil, from oil trading. Um, they don't drill, but they invest. And those same investment banks then lend money to countries. And they may lend money to a country like Barbados after it is hit by major natural disasters that wipe out a third or 50% or even more than 100% of a year of GDP. Because of that kind of situation, they will hit that country with an astronomical uh, interest rate. And so the same actors that are causing the, the crisis that country is facing are then profiteering from the disaster. So in order to correct that, Prime Minister Motley proposed what's now being called the Bridgetown Initiative. That's the capital of Barbados. Uh, last year, the Treasury Secretary called on the World Bank to evolve its mission and practice to deal with this 21st century time of multiple crises, not just poverty, not just debt risk, but 
climate change, pandemics, and other major shocks. Uh, in April, volunteers of ours around the world from 31 countries sent letters to their executive directors at the World Bank with four key asks. In July, they're sending four more. Uh, and just to summarize all, what that was all about, we're asking essentially that the World Bank invest to support the health of all human beings and all of nature, recognize human rights, don't punish the vulnerable, support multilateral cooperative arrangements, which I'll get to in a minute, and include stakeholders in the design, delivery, and tracking of development finance. Um, now, right before the most recent round of UN climate negotiations, which happened at the beginning of June, um, we held our own recent round of climate diplomacy workshops called the Earth Diplomacy Leadership Initiative. We do this in collaboration with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Um, it was a very successful round. It was well attended. We had people from around the world. We had high ranking negotiators. We had students. We had all kinds of people joining. We held a debrief session in Bonn, Germany during the negotiations that was chaired by uh, Carlos Alvarado, who's the former president of Costa Rica. Um, and we're now raising funds for a significant expansion of this program. Part of that expansion is something we're already doing, which is we're building out a community of discussion of past participants that will continue preparing for upcoming negotiations like this year's COP. Um, during those same recent UN talks, we launched a new website, ccblue.com. This is a series of briefing notes on international policy. So they're long, detailed, wonky, um, but it's important because it's allowed us to actually bring the, the insights that emerge from our whole global network of stakeholders in CCI directly to senior negotiators and policymakers. One of the key items we focused on is something very, very wonky called non-market approaches under Article 6.8 of the Paris Agreement. And I wanna just simplify that by telling you a really cool story. So back in 2014, when we were the international program of CCE and CCL, uh, it became evident that you can't have the kind of carbon tax that we were looking for through the UN system. First of all, there's no taxation authority to do it. And secondly, it would create really problematic politics. So we translated the virtues of the fee and dividend proposal into something we called the Paris principles, five principles for how countries can work together to advance climate action that would have the same virtues of a fee and dividend. There were two really important effects to that. One of them was that the World Bank and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development created a list of principles that were very similar called the faster principles for accelerating climate uh, carbon pricing. Uh, and that became foundational for the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. That community then became the space where what ultimately became Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, where there are provisions that allow for emissions trading as a form of carbon pricing. And then there's paragraph 8 that talks about non-market or non-emissions trading approaches. Um, and that becomes the space where it's possible for countries to nudge each other to price carbon. That's where it's possible to talk about carbon border adjustments, carbon pricing clubs, financial regulations, trade agreements. Um, a really big success from our perspective is that nine years after this work started last week for the first time, the COP presidency, the United Arab Emirates presidency hosting this year's negotiations, announced that it would call on nations to develop robust multilateral non-market approaches to accelerate climate action in all areas. 
this is a huge victory and a huge breakthrough. And it also creates a very favorable environment internationally for the kind of policies that CCL is supporting in the US. Um, it's the first time that that kind of thing will be considered formally as part of the negotiations. Previously, they've only ever discussed rules and a website. Um, but I wanted to share that because it's about the timeline. It's about how long it takes and how many different actors have to ultimately get involved to make something like that happen in international law. Um, another piece of news that you all know, I think, is that we had our first parliamentary delegation visiting from another country during this year's conference. Uh, I don't know if you all know this, but that was a formal delegation. Uh, the Speaker of the Parliament of Ghana designated Yves Hansen Norte and Ebenezer Okwete Terlabi to formally represent the entire parliament. They are the vice chair and ranking member of the Environment Committee, and they're from different parties. And the experience was really wonderful. Uh, they had great meetings on Capitol Hill and with multilateral development banks. Uh, that's going to help their own national climate legislation. They are now eagerly awaiting the arrival of CCL Ghana volunteers to meet them in Accra, the capital, later this year. Um, and their visit is now a foundation for doing an expanded version of the same thing. We're going to be welcoming ministers of parliament from at least five countries next year. And we hope to welcome our own volunteers from those same countries as well. And we wanna expand and add something new, which is an interparliamentary dialogue between those countries and those parliamentarians, and possibly also with lawmakers from the US, both from DC, but, but also potentially state lawmakers. Um, and then finally, the outlook for COP28. Um, this is something I really wanna emphasize. The Inflation Reduction Act has totally changed the dynamic of international climate policy. Um, and you'll hear the opposite here in the US, you'll hear the opposite from countries that don't want to be pushed to stop polluting, uh, like some of the big oil powers you may, you may think of. Um, but the fact is it has. It gives the US a lot more leverage in climate-related negotiations. Um, it makes it a lot easier to now discuss all trade becoming climate smart, finance, agricultural policy, border adjustments. Um, and it's important to note that while you know, the UN talks will set standards, they won't regulate the, what we call non-market approaches. They won't regulate these, what are essentially trade agreements. Um, that'll be done bilaterally or multilaterally as it always has. There's just a new standard for what level of, of environmental friendliness you need to rise to. Uh, there's another way in which the IRA is really important internationally, which is that the United States showed that it's possible to use budget measures and a whole of government approach to create fiscal space, meaning to free up budget resources to help the finance ministry, or in our case, the treasury, uh, find more money to invest in the right things. And almost every country in the world needs to find ways to do that. So the IRA has become a model that others now want to emulate. And again, that's giving the US a lot of leverage to help other countries plan in a way that we would want them to do. Um, my advice, if I were in a position to give it to everyone on Capitol Hill, would be whatever your politics are, you should embrace that leverage and work for the best future for all of us. Um, and then finally, the Paris Summit on a New Global Financial Pact, which happened last month, uh, June 22nd and 23rd in Paris, um, achieved a couple of important breakthroughs. One of them was that the World Bank agreed to suspend loan repayments when countries face debt distress. That's only for new loans, not old ones yet, but it's a huge step in the right direction. 
another is that there were a couple of major debt relief announcements, including a $6 billion relief of Zambia's international debt. And that was a, a big chunk of that was from the US, but an even bigger chunk was from China. And that's the first time China has ever done that. They did that with US support and encouragement and pressure. Uh, and that's really only possible because of the kind of leverage the US has gained from passage of the IRA. Um, and then I just like to share that later this year, we will have lobby days in Accra, Ghana, in Berlin, Germany, in Brussels, lobbying the EU, in Canberra, Australia, Lagos, Nigeria, Mexico City, Ottawa, Canada, and Paris, France. Great. Okay. That's a, so that's a quick update on what's been happening internationally. You just see there's a lot to be excited about there. I just want to point to one thing domestically, and that is uh, a lot of you signed up for our climate action program where every month you have a chance to reach out to your legislators about uh, actions that they can take. And so that's on a three-month cycle. So first month, it's carbon pricing. Second month, it's permitting reform. The third is what we call secondary ask, which is the one we have this month. So those are the follow the not as big asks as our primary ask at conferences, but they're important to continue the ball moving forward. So that cycle goes carbon pricing, permitting reform, secondary ask. During the last two months, we had 14,683 people reach out to Congress. And last month, the month of July alone, 15,499. So that's a lot of activity. And thank you all for, for reaching out and doing that. What are we doing this month? Well, the members are back in district, so we want you to attend the town halls uh, where it's at all possible. There's really good resources in the action sheet about how to have that be effective based on how your member of Congress is. Uh, we're getting a lot more people uh, attending the intro calls. So if you would attend to onboarding processes and you're onboarding, we know the most important thing is how quickly you get to people. And then second, giving them something that, the, that they can do, like the Climate Action Program is a really good example. The social media action is to comment on or share senators' uh, uh, posts about the Prove It Act. The chapter development bonus action is to take our demographic survey. You can do that really quickly at the end of the call today. And then the communication exercise is to practice saying the Prove It Act talking points. Uh, also, Ricky's going to show you how you can log your attendance. We'd love it if you would uh, log your attendance uh, every month. So, Ricky, can you show us how to do that? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. I'll, I'll assume you hear me. Okay, great. Uh, so, yes, what is this thing about login attendance? Oh, it just sounds so horrible. I mean, what's the purpose? Why are you guys asking me to do this stuff? Well, there's three real big reasons. Uh, it benefits CCL when you log attendance at a meeting or event, and it does that by helping CCL nationally and the local chapters really know who's engaged and what everyone's up to. And in turn, that social proof of people taking action is really shown to lead to increased satisfaction and retention of all supporters. And finally, the other way that it benefits CCL is that more activity and more actions helps fundraising and makes us more competitive when we're applying for grants. An example of where that happened just yesterday, we completed an analysis of how many people CCL touched last year during presentations and tabling events. And that number was over 600,000 people. So we were able to put that into a grant, very impressive. And just, that's all the work that everyone on this call and everyone else has been doing. So kudos to that. Um, 
so logging your attendance, it's not so hard. Oops, I think I went to the wrong thing, <laughs> the wrong slide. I'm going to put this up. Give me one second. This is the slide I wanted to show. Um, there's a QR code. You can scan that QR code. It's going to take you right to the action tracker. You can do that now. I'll leave it up here for just a second. But also, we want to drop that link in the chat. That'll take you to the action tracker where you can log this attendance at this meeting. And finally, I created a short two-minute video for you, a tutorial. It's not professionally done. Don't tell Leslie Beatty and the marketing team. It is just me. Uh, but I will drop that into the chat as well. We'll we're going to work on some more like uh, very professional uh, videos about logging actions and stuff later. So that's it, Mark. It's really important that we we uh, make sure that we're just recording everything that we're doing because it just helps us in so many ways. So we appreciate everyone taking the time to do that. Great, Ricky. Thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Okay, just so I want to point to a couple of things coming up in the fall. First of all, in September, we have a fall inclusion conference, and we want to hear from one minute from Karina Ramirez from our staff about that conference. Saludos. I'm Karina Ramirez, CCO Diversity and Inclusion Director. My pronouns are she, her, ella. And I am joining you today from South Florida, the traditional lands of the Seminole, Taino, and Tequesta peoples. I want to take this opportunity to invite you to our second inclusion conference taking place in September. Our theme this year is building community beyond barriers. The purpose of this year's gathering is to encourage dialogue, promote understanding, and learn about how different communities from around the world address climate change and what you can do to help. Our virtual event will kick off with a reception on Friday, September the 15th at 7 o'clock Eastern, and our conference will start the next day on Saturday, September the 16th from 1 to 6.30 Eastern. As you already know, this conference is led by volunteers and members of our Affinity teams with the support of CCL staff. We are excited to bring this event back to CCL and once again during the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. Please invite your local members of your community to join us. Go to CCLUSA slash inclusion to register and see you then. Great, Karina, thank you so much for that. Uh, I'd also all like you to please block on your calendars November 4th and 5th. That will be our fall uh, virtual conference. So if you just go ahead and mark your calendar, we'll open that for registration in September. But if you could mark your calendar now, block off uh, November 4th and 5th for our fall virtual conference. Last thing, two things I want to mention are two bills that we expect to be out in the uh, pretty soon after um, Congress gets back from the, the break. Uh, so that's the September, October time frame. First of all, we expect the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act to be back out, uh, which will give us a way of pushing hard on carbon pricing. So we're excited about that. Uh, we thought it would be out by now, but we're excited that, that we expect it in the fall. And the second is there is going to be a bipartisan companion bill in the House for the Prove It Act, which is there's a bipartisan bill already out in the Senate. And as you know, that's a precursor to a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So those are both a big deal and we're excited about them. And you should see, hear more about that in the September, October time range. All right, everybody, thank you so much. Ramona, thank you for being such a great guest, providing all that great information. We hope to certainly explore and expand our partnership with you. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. 
We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.